Is it social anxiety or just being introverted? Let's get into the scientific details only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 132, where I aim to arm us with some scientific evidence so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with each new episode. How has your summer been? Thank you for letting me take off the last few weeks from the show. The last few weeks have been great for me. I took some time off from my research in the lab. And I also learned that two of my scientific research papers got accepted for publication. One was to the journal Metabolites, and the other was to the journal The Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. So in the very near future, you can anticipate an episode coming out specific to my latest published research. I also want to take a moment to say a special thank you to a few people that have bought me a coffee as a thank you for the show. So a special shout out to Dave, Stephen, Tony, and a lovely anonymous person. Thank you so much for your kindness and generosity. It means so much to me because I find that doing a podcast is sometimes difficult because I feel like I'm speaking to myself. Whenever I hear from any of you that you enjoyed the show and you buy me a coffee as a thank you, it makes my whole week. So thank you so much to everyone that has bought me a coffee. If you by chance want to buy me a coffee to say thank you, you can do so via the links in the description box to this episode. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, as it is the beginning of a new academic year, many of us are starting at a new college, perhaps living on campus for the first time, perhaps starting a new job, or just getting back to work or school after a summer vacation. Now this can be an exciting time, but also a time of some anxious feelings, perhaps, some nervousness, some social anxiety even. So today we are going to talk about what social anxiety is. Let's understand it so that we may be able to cope and overcome it, yeah? But before we do, before we get into that topic, let's start off as we always do with a foregone fact, where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Dating all the way back to Charles Darwin in the mid-1800s, Darwin had observed the passing down of anxieties through generations of dogs. For example, he had observed that in a male dog, it had a fear of a neutral object, like a book. Now this male dog bred with a female dog, and the female dog had a litter of pups. Now this male dog, who had this fear of this neutral object, like a book, who followed these pups, 
never came into contact with the litter. But this litter of pups, as they grew older, seemed to also have some slight anxieties associated with this neutral object, like a book, as well. How is this possible? This suggests that the fear was not learned or conditioned in, as they never came into contact with the male dog, but rather a result of passing down this trait of fear by other means. This caused Darwin to speculate that fears may be passed down via what we know today as epigenetics. This, to be honest, is rare to see, but it has been observed. Sometimes it is unknown why we fear specific things. Sometimes it is because of something we saw or experienced in life. But maybe, just maybe, it was because of something someone in a previous generation experienced. I speak of our genetic history, epigenetics, and how the lifestyle of our previous generations may impact us today, back in episode 121, if this topic interests you. Now let's get into today's topic, all about social anxiety. So let's get into the core takeaways. The prevalence of social anxiety is thought to have increased in the last few years with the enhanced social isolation that we've experienced from the pandemic and the heightened use of social media, which I do think is true to a certain extent, but I would also like to offer an alternative theory that perhaps the pandemic led some of us to become more introverted. Sometimes we may avoid social situations because we have now adapted to gain our energy from being alone and perhaps are tired or uninterested in going out and socializing. And that, to a certain extent, is normal or is a feature of introversion or being introverted. Social anxiety in itself is quite specific and different, in that it is often hallmarked with an intense fear or anxiety of embarrassment and scrutiny by others, and therefore an individual may tend to avoid social situations or endures them with great discomfort. Now, individuals living with social anxiety may have differences in brain region activity compared to individuals without anxiety, such as differences in their anterior cingulate cortex, striatum, and amygdala. This could be a result of genetics or experiences in life. Now, treatments for social anxiety include a medication called an SSRI. Non-medication therapies include cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy. Now, let's get into those scientific details. With the sudden social isolation that the pandemic brought on, social anxiety was something that many people thought they experienced and felt. So let's talk about specifically what social anxiety is, because we might mistake typical feelings for social anxiety. For example, have you ever made plans to go out and then felt like not going out? I think that's normal to a certain extent. It could be because we are tired. Maybe we are feeling stressed from the day's events. Not as interested in the plans anymore. That isn't necessarily social anxiety. That can be normal. In fact, we could even say that that is a characteristic of introversion or being introverted. I think that in the last few years, we globally have become more introverted. Now, to determine if we are more introverted or extroverted, we can ask the question, how do I get energized or how do I refuel myself? If we prefer quiet, alone time to re-energize, 
we may lean toward being introverted. If we feel energized when being around other people, then we may be more of an extrovert. Now, in the past, being introverted may have been associated with some negative things, such as a lack of confidence or being passive. And I see this when I go back in the literature and the studies dating back in the 1940s. I can certainly see scientists made associations of being introverted with some negative personality traits. But today, we can see that this is not the case. Being introverted can be completely healthy and normal. Introversion can be characterized by deep thinking, reflection, intelligence, and being observant. I think the pandemic gave us the opportunity to all settle into the qualities of introversion, such as leaning more into self-reflection, reading and writing as opposed to talking, deep thinking, and daydreaming. So maybe it is not that social anxiety per se has increased over the last few years, but maybe all of us enjoyed the temporary opportunity in being more introverted. Being introverted is completely healthy and normal, as long as we are happy and energized in that setting. Now, being introverted is different from social anxiety. Do you think that your tendency to be extroverted or introverted has changed in the last few years? Now, social anxiety may also be mistaken for being nervous in social settings. Like maybe we feel nervous about going to a party where we know no one. Maybe we are feeling anxious about giving a talk in front of people. Again, these can be completely normal responses to these situations. Feeling nervous does not have to be viewed as a negative feeling. Feeling nervous means that we might be trying something new. Whenever we try something new, it tends to feel awkward. Like, think about if today, imagine when you woke up, you picked up your toothbrush, and instead of brushing your teeth with your usual dominant hand, you picked up your toothbrush with your other hand and attempted to brush your teeth with your non-dominant hand. It would probably feel very awkward and uncomfortable, right? I bet if you kept doing that for a handful of days, it would feel less awkward and more comfortable. I use this example to illustrate that being uncomfortable or feeling awkward often just means that we are trying something new. And that's normal. That's okay. So if you ever feel nervous about a situation like this when we're trying something new, we can tell ourselves, hey, this is normal. It means that I'm trying something new and different and exciting. One question that I love to ask myself when I feel nervous about a social situation or a new environment is, what am I so afraid of? I love this question. What am I so afraid of? Like really, specifically, what am I nervous about? That I might make a mistake during a presentation in front of my coworkers? So what? Most people probably won't notice, I bet. Or that I won't know what to say to people at a party? No big deal. I'll just have a few good questions at the ready. Some of my favorite questions to ask people that I've just met at a party are, can you remember your first day moving to this city? What was it like? Or something appropriate to the setting. Like if we are at a restaurant, we can say something like, oh, I always wondered what it would be like to be a bartender. Have you ever bartended? Or if a sports game is on the TV, we can ask or talk about the game. I think having specific questions also helps with social anxiety because a good conversationalist is often someone who listens with intent and has good, specific follow-up questions. 
A good conversationalist is not necessarily the person with the most interesting story to tell, but rather the person that is a really good active listener. That's what I think. So sometimes just listening to the person with intent and having really good follow-up questions is a really excellent way to be a good conversationalist. So now that I've shared a few examples of my own about my own personal feelings of nervousness in social settings and how that is expected and normal and how I deal with them, let's talk about what social anxiety actually is. Stein, published in The Lancet in 2008, wrote that individuals living with social anxiety disorder fear and avoid the scrutiny of others. That we might fear that we will say or do something that will result in embarrassment or humiliation. And these fears and anxieties can be so intense that we might avoid a social situation or endure the situation with great discomfort. But at the same time, we might crave the company of other people. We just fear the social situation. As scientists and practitioners, in order to characterize and diagnose different conditions of mental health, we have a set of published criteria, and this criteria is called the DSM-5, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition. So according to the DSM-5 criteria, social anxiety, or sometimes called social phobia, has these following traits. One, marked fear or anxiety about one or more social situations in which the individual is exposed to possible scrutiny by others. So for example, that could be having a conversation with people, meeting unfamiliar people, being observed, like when we're eating or drinking, when we have to perform in front of people, like giving a speech. In children, they note that anxiety, the social anxiety must occur in peer settings and not just when interacting with adults. The second trait of social anxiety is that there is a fear or anxiety that is out of proportion to the actual threat posed by the social situation meaning that we feel an incredible and large fear to something that's really small and minute, like attending a party. The third trait is that social situations are avoided or endured with intense fear or anxiety. Fourth trait is that the fear, anxiety, or avoidance is persistent, and it typically lasts for six months or more. And lastly, that the fear, anxiety, or avoidance is not attributable, attributable to the physiological effects of a substance, like a drug of abuse or medication or another medical condition. Now, this is an important one to consider this last point, because sometimes the intake of stimulants like caffeine can temporarily increase feelings of anxiety or nervousness. It can elevate our heart rate. Alcohol might temporarily reduce feelings of social anxiety. That is a big reason why people socially drink. And that is because alcohol is classified as a depressant, meaning that it depresses or slows down neural activity in particular brain regions, such as brain regions that regulate anxiety. So alcohol may reduce nervousness or feelings of anxiety by suppressing activity in those brain regions. However, in large amounts, alcohol can actually have a rebound effect several hours later. So if alcohol suppressed activity in a brain region, the next morning, the activity is going to rebound to be even higher than normal. This is called rebound hyperexcitability. This may cause temporary heightened feelings of anxiety. Now, because the brain region was quieted down with alcohol, the next morning, it might be hyperactive, giving temporary feelings of anxiousness. 
And if that interests you, I talk all about alcohol in our brain at length, all the way back in episode 14. So why do we want to study or even talk about social anxiety today? The reason why we want to pay attention to social anxiety is because it is often tied in with depression, conditions such as autism, and it may lead to more days absent from work and school and poorer performance. Studies have shown that social anxiety is often associated with other mental illnesses and mood disorders. Now, Jeffries in the journal PLOS One in 2020 wrote of the prevalence of social anxiety in our world. They had surveyed nearly 7,000 people aged 16 to 29 years old, so young adults. Now, a strength to this study was that they had surveyed people across seven different countries. And I always enjoy studies that look at individuals of many countries, as citizens of one country can have very different lifestyles and stressors versus citizens of another country. So what seven countries did they survey citizens from? They looked at citizens from Brazil, China, Indonesia, Russia, Thailand, the United States, and Vietnam. The respondents completed the social interaction anxiety scale to determine their feelings or level of social anxiety. So would you like to hear some of the questions on the survey? That way we can answer them for ourselves. It might give us an understanding as to how social anxiety may manifest and if we can relate to that. So we would answer the following questions on a five-point scale. So zero being not at all true for me, one would be slightly true, two is moderately true, three very true, and four is extremely true. So some of the questions were, or the statements were, I have difficulty making eye contact with others. I find it difficult to mix comfortably with the people I work with. I tense up if I meet an acquaintance in the street. I worry about expressing myself in case I appear awkward. I find myself worrying that I won't know what to say in social situations. If we answer that these were very or extremely true to us, it is possible that we have some traits of social anxiety. If so, it turns out that we are not alone. How prevalent is social anxiety? Well, in this study, where they surveyed thousands of people across seven countries, they had noted that the prevalence of social anxiety was found to be much higher than previously reported, with more than one in three, or 36% of the respondents meeting the threshold criteria for having social anxiety disorder. One in six, or 18%, perceived themselves as not having social anxiety, yet still met or exceeded the threshold for having social anxiety. So with the social isolation that we have all faced in the last few years, and the increased use of social media, has this changed our tendency toward social anxiety? Well, studies have indicated that greater social media use, an increased digital connectivity and visibility, and more options for non-face-to-face communication, such as texting, are associated with higher levels of social anxiety. It is thought that social media and texting may replace some face-to-face interactions and therefore could make it difficult or uncomfortable to converse with people face-to-face. We can think about a situation where maybe we could have great banter back and forth with someone online or over texting. Then maybe when meeting in person, the ability to react to someone has to happen much more quickly, right? The interaction is different. 
because maybe we're used to having time to respond in an online setting or over texting, but in person or over the phone, we have to be much quicker in our responses. Now, having anxiety about how to respond to people in conversation is an element to social anxiety. Now, let's get into that a little bit more. Let's say that we think we may have some components of social anxiety. How may we cope with it? Well, in order to talk about therapies for social anxiety, we need to understand it just a little bit more. So let's first talk about the neuroscience of social anxiety. In brain imaging studies, many things have been observed. Stein in 2008 in the Lancet reviewed some brain imaging studies in patients with social anxiety. Now, in individuals battling with social anxiety, they tended to have higher levels of the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate in a particular part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex versus control individuals without any anxiety. Now, the anterior cingulate cortex has many functions such as decision-making, attention control, and our ability to detect errors or mistakes. It might just be that in individuals with social anxiety, they have more activity in this brain region. This brain region might be hyperactive. Now, this could potentially explain their reason for having heightened attention to mistakes or having anxiety or concern about having mistakes in conversing with others. That the anterior cingulate cortex might be overstimulated because they're continually trying to make a decision or thinking of different scenarios in a social setting. Scientists have also noted increased blood flow in the amygdala of the brain, a brain region known to be involved in emotions, including fear. This enhanced recruitment of the amygdala was seen during public speaking in individuals with social anxiety versus those without anxiety. Now, when individuals with social anxiety took part in cognitive behavioral therapy to help manage their social anxiety, a reduction in amygdala blood flow or recruitment was noted. So that determines that cognitive behavioral therapy may help manage social anxiety, and the mechanism is because it's recruiting this amygdala, this brain region that controls fear, it recruits it less. And I will get into cognitive behavioral therapy as a treatment for social anxiety later on in the episode. Many brain imaging studies also indicate that dopamine and the striatum is implicated in social anxiety as well. For example, in individuals living with social anxiety, it was observed that they had reduced striatal dopamine reuptake site density and reduced serotonin 1A binding potential in the amygdala, the anterior cingulate, and the insula versus patients without social anxiety. So this begs the question, why these differences exist in brain region activity? That is still a complex question that's still being studied. It can be as a result of genetics. There are some associations of genes involved in serotonin to the risk of social anxiety or anxiety in general, meaning that someone could be born with slight differences in their genetic code for genes involved in serotonin, and that that seems to be associated with a higher risk for living with anxiety disorders. Besides genetics, it could also be neuroplastic and an adaptation to one's life events. Like, for example, if we had some negative social experiences as we were growing up, perhaps that led us to be hypervigilant and less confident in social situations. In episode 124, I talk about the neuroscience of self-confidence. Now, self-confidence, or specifically a lack of self-confidence, also seems to play a role in social anxiety. 
And I won't repeat what I said back in episode 124, but I highly recommend going back to that episode and giving it a listen as it is really relevant to today's episode. So now that we have a good understanding of social anxiety and the neuroscience of it, let's talk about strategies to help manage it. The most common therapies for social anxiety disorder today are the medication SSRI and cognitive behavioral therapy. But the success rate of treating social anxiety in these approaches, using these approaches, is about 50%. There's also a newer proposed therapy called psychodynamic therapy. So let's talk about these three treatments. An SSRI is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So I said the word serotonin. Let's talk about that for a moment. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter, sometimes also called a neuromodulator, and it acts in the brain and is important for the stabilization of our mood. Now, there are associations of genes involved in serotonin production and transport that seem to be linked to mood disorders, meaning that there there can be individuals born with slight differences in their genetic code for serotonin-related genes, and that as a result, they might be at a slightly higher risk for living with a mood disorder. It is thought that through different brain imaging scans, such as using a PET scan that can specifically measure serotonin, that serotonin levels may be lower in certain parts of the brain in individuals that battle with depression and anxiety. As such, a class of medications called SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, work to keep the amount of serotonin in the synaptic cleft in between the neurons there and therefore active for longer at higher levels. These medications have approximately up to a 50% success rate in improving symptoms of depression and anxiety. So 50% is not enough. We need to offer other treatment strategies. So let's talk about a non-pharmaceutical therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy, let's talk about that one. Butler in 2021 in the journal Behavioral Therapy writes of cognitive behavioral therapy for social anxiety. Cognitive behavioral therapy for social anxiety has a focus on cognitive restructuring and exposure. So cognitive behavioral therapy involves asking questions to allow the individual to critically think about their fears and anxieties, to understand them, to strategize on how to avoid and cope with different situations. For example, asking the question, what is it specifically that you fear about going out to the gathering tonight? You know, someone might respond by saying, um, not knowing what to say, I guess, in that setting, not knowing what to say to people at the party. Okay, the response could be, okay, well then let's strategize by having some good conversation points and some good questions. Often a good conversationalist is one who listens intently and asks specific follow-up questions. It is not always about having a great story or an interesting fact. Sometimes having a great conversation is about genuine interest and good questions. So you can see in that example that social anxiety is being treated by identifying the source of anxiety, being really specific, and critically thinking about it and strategizing. In addition to the critical thinking component of cognitive behavioral therapy, there are also exposure exercises. So having us get used to social settings at first by being in a safer environment. For example, giving an opportunity to have a conversation in a small group setting within the safety of a therapy room 
then once confidence and comfortability is achieved there through repeated exposure exercises, the individual could progress to outside the therapy environment. According to Zhang in the Journal of Psychiatry Research this year, as well as Leakenring in 2007, in a clinical trial of nearly 500 people, cognitive behavioral therapy such as this, what I just described, resulted in about 60% of people responding well and improving in their social anxiety. Let's talk about a third treatment, psychodynamic therapy. This type of treatment focuses on our root cause of emotional suffering. It involves self-reflection and self-examination, asking why we feel this way. What in our life may have led us to feel this way? Do we see a pattern in how we feel or think about things in our life? The goal is to gain an understanding of how we think and perceive the world. For example, can you think of situations that make you feel uncomfortable and nervous? For example, someone might respond by saying, well, public speaking at work or school, meetings with my boss or professor. Okay, so what do these two things have in common? Well, they have to do with work, as well as an authority figure like our boss or our teacher. So maybe our social anxiety is specific to authority figures. Okay, let's dig into that. Why is that? Maybe because the authority figure holds power over our job, our career, our livelihood, our grades. Okay, good. How can we take some of that power back then? Well, we can make ourselves valuable at work by gaining more skills so that we are valuable and hireable at other companies as well. Maybe we can try to do extracurricular courses or coursework so that we can ensure that our grades remain high. So you can see how a deep understanding of the root cause of one's anxiety can help provide understanding and strategizing. That it's not just, okay, I have, I have social anxiety and I have a fear of presenting, but it's deeper than that. It's more so that maybe we're uncomfortable with the power that an authority figure has over our life. Okay, now that we've actually understood that about ourselves, we can strategize according to that understanding. So now we can see how effective that psychodynamic therapy can be. So in that same clinical trial by Zhang and colleagues in the journal Psychiatry Research, they not only looked at cognitive behavioral therapy for social anxiety, but this also psychodynamic approach. There was also a control group that received no therapy at the time as they were on a wait list for therapy. And it turns out that this psychodynamic therapy resulted in 52% of people to respond positively and significantly for their symptoms of social anxiety. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. Some neuroscience on social anxiety. Social anxiety may be mistaken for feelings of nervousness, uncomfortability, or awkwardness. But please know that many times these feelings are completely normal, especially when we are in a new environment or setting. It's like we are just, it, what it could mean is that we're just trying something new. Just like the example I gave, if we were to brush our teeth tomorrow morning with our other hand instead of our dominant hand, it would feel really awkward, right? But with time, if we kept doing that every morning and every night, it would feel more comfortable and less awkward over time. If by chance we do battle with social anxiety, we met a lot of the criteria that I listed in today's episode, please know that you're not alone. 
that according to that one study of thousands of people across seven countries, about one in three people seem to score or meet the threshold for social anxiety. I hope that in today's episode, I've allowed us to have a better understanding of social anxiety. For example, we understand that certain brain regions might be involved, like the anterior cingulate cortex, the striatum, and the amygdala. These brain regions may act a little bit differently, perhaps because of genetics, perhaps because of our life history and what we've gone through. But that's okay. There are treatments that can help. For example, the medication SSRI as well as cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy. These these may be of help, and perhaps the combination of all three may be a good strategy for some. I also encourage you to listen to episode 124, where I talk about the neuroscience of self-confidence, which plays a significant role in our self-esteem and our ability to manage social situations. I hope that this episode was helpful and informative for all of you. If you want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the episode, the information on how to do that is in the description box. If you want to see some of the studies that I cite in each episode, I share a lot of those on my social media, and the handles to my social media are in the description box too. I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks, and I look forward to meeting you all back here for episode 133. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.